0: Now as we jump into this weekend, one of the things that I think that might be helpful for us, for some of us this will be a reminder, for some of you it may be the first time you've heard this, uh, but as we talk about marriage and as we talk about things of such significance and such importance, it's always good to define terms. Now what do we mean when we say marriage? So we're a church, I'm, a, I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church of Washington DC, we're hosting this and I want you to know what we mean when we use the statement or use the word marriage. Uh, we believe at our church that marriage is a single, exclusive covenant union entered into by one man and one woman, which God bears witness to. With only, or, or Only within such a union does God intend for sexual intimacy to occur. Any form of sexual immorality outside of that union is sinful and offensive to God. So as we discuss, as we think about marriage, as you think about talking to people who may, may be married that you know or may be thinking about marriage, this is what we mean and this is what I hope that you would mean when you talk about marriage and intimacy. Uh, If you have any questions about that, you want to discuss it, you're like, I I don't know, Thomas, I don't know if I agree with you on that definition of marriage. Please feel free to pull me to the side and let's talk about it this weekend. I'll be here. This is one of the only times I'm speaking. I'll be emceeing the rest of the time. Um, But I would love to talk to you about the meaning of marriage and why it is such an important relationship. Um, So let's take some time now to look at the foundational text for the rest of our time together over the weekend. Uh, this will be the same text that all of our speakers will be speaking from. Uh, and uh, I would ask that if you have a Bible, that you would go ahead and open that Bible to Colossians chapter 3. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles around you. Uh, I would even say that if you don't have a Bible and you need a Bible, take one of those Bibles there. And the text for tonight can be found on page 928, 928. Uh, before we get into the letter of Colossians, I thought it might be helpful just to like, give us a little brief intro to Colossians. and What is it, and why are we reading from it, and uh, why is it important? Uh, well, the context is, is that um, uh, Paul, one of the apostles, the apostle to the Gentiles, uh, wrote to the church at Colossae to strengthen it against false teaching. Specifically, there were false teachers that were trying to impose specific rules or strict rules about eating and drinking and even religious festivals. And in this letter, Paul writes to show the church of Colossae the superiority of Christ and what it means to follow him against all the world philosophies and traditions. He writes of Christ's deity, that Christ is God, and that Christ has come to reconcile um, people back to God by, by his blood, which even makes forgiveness possible, which is going to be uh, something I focus in on tonight. And then Jared tomorrow is going to talk about forgiveness as well. Um, Paul then write, or explains that the right way of living in this world is to focus on heavenly things rather than earthly things. And I would just simply ask you, uh, as you've gone throughout your last few weeks, How often, how tempted, how regularly are you focusing on earthly things rather than heavenly things? Maybe the book of Colossians would be a letter that you should read sometime this week. And then Paul writes of God's chosen people that they must leave and forsake their sinful ways and live in a godly way. And as we're going to see here in chapter 3, uh, that we can put off our old way. We can actually, just like I could take off this jacket, because of what Christ is, because of who Christ is, because of who God has made us in Christ, we can take off the old way and put on the way of Christ. So if you will join me, uh, you follow along silently as I read aloud from, uh, from Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. <clears throat> Paul writes, Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if one has bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Let me pray. Father God, I pray that now as we look into your word, as we look at what Paul wrote to encourage us to be like Christ, to put on a compassionate heart, to be like our Savior in kindness and humility and meekness. God, help us. Come to our aid Father, with this many marriages sitting here in this room, this many husbands, this many wives, I know, God, that probably even tonight driving here was difficult for some. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us see Jesus. Help us see that you have indeed forgiven and forgiveness is possible. And we can live differently in this world. We need your help. We beg you to help us. And God, I pray that you would bless these marriages this weekend. Father, may some of them who feel like they're a sinking ship right now, underneath the waves and oppression of this world, I pray that they would see that ship turning, going in the way of Christ, and that you would help them bail all water and that they would sail well for the rest of their lives and the rest of their marriages. Father, I love you, and I thank you so much for your son, Jesus, and I pray these things in his name. Amen. So um, tonight, or this evening, our focus is going to be on a very short section of one of those verses I just read, specifically in verse 13. Look with me back there. uh, About a A third of the way through, Paul writes this little phrase, As the Lord has forgiven you. As the Lord has forgiven you. Up to this point in Colossians, Paul has been writing a theological letter in the first two chapters. And he's been explaining who Jesus is what God has done for humanity in Christ Jesus, and who are the people. But, but chapter 3, to the end of the book of Colossians, starts a new section in the book. It starts this section that's very practical. That if we actually believe what's written in chapters 1 and 2, then it should change how we live our lives. It should change how we live our lives in the church, and it should surely change our lives how we live them in marriage. Paul writes this leading up to 3 and uh, writes this in chapter 2 of Colossians that is true of all Christians as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk with him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving and then on down in the start of chapter 3 Paul writes if then you have been raised with Christ seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God and set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of earth, for you have died and your life is hidden in Christ or hidden with Christ in God. And these verses are a good summary of for the basis for that part of chapter three, verse 13, as the Lord has forgiven you. Uh, I've titled this session, if you're taking notes, that we are servants like Christ. We can serve, as I would say, as husbands and wives. We can serve because he has first served us. So, let's take a closer look at verse 13 and see how it reveals to us that we have been served by Christ. And then, later on, I want to take some time to explore what serving one another in our marriages, really looks like. Get really super practical. What does it look like to serve my wife? Or what does it look like to serve my husband? So, read it again. As the Lord has forgiven you. This text has a huge implication, doesn't it? The major implication is that at some point, Before the Lord forgave you, you were not forgiven. And I would say, if you have not been forgiven from the Lord, this text is not true of you. There was a period in time when you stood, instead of forgiven, you stood in condemnation. You were guilty. You were sinning and rebelling against God and His ways. And instead of having all your sins forgiven your sin and rebellion was actually counted against you. It's like standing in a court hearing and the only credible evidence in the hearing was against you and revealed your absolute and stunning and sure guilt. But Paul writes also, it, as he leads into this, that you're God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, you've been for, if you've been forgiven, in, in 3.12. This implies something else, that if you are not forgiven, you're also not holy and you are not loved. Before God chose you to make you his own, you're unforgiven, you're unholy, and you're unloved. Now, right there, you might be asking yourself, Thomas, is this really how you wanted to start this out? Is this really how you wanted to start the weekend off? I mean, we were talking about marriages, we're supposed to be like encouraged and like built up, and yes, I wanted to share the bad news with you, because if I believe that if we don't comprehend, if we don't comprehend and remember the horrid estate that we were in before forgiveness, then we will fail to grasp how good and powerful the good news of Jesus is for our marriages. Let me say that again, friends. If we fail to grasp the horrid estate that we were in before forgiveness, then we will fail to grasp how good and powerful the gospel is for our marriage. So yes, yes, we must hear the bad news first before we get to the good news. And I want to be clear. In all of that, I used a bunch of you language because that's how Paul talks. You, you, you. It wasn't just you, friends. I too was in the same, same state before God forgave me. But there's something else that's interesting about the part of this verse. It's the who is doing the work, and who is receiving the action, specifically of the verb forgiven. Recall, the Lord has forgiven. The verb here, has forgiven, I'm not going to bore you with Greek, but it's a divine passive. That means it's a completed action by a divine being upon you. That means that you're not the one forgiving yourself. You're not living in a live and let go kind of moment with God, where you sort of get your act together. You breathe a deep sigh of relief, of half-hearted relief, that is. You look at yourself in the mirror, and you just simply try to do better today than you did yesterday. That's not the forgiveness that we live under as Christians. That's not what's happened to us if we have been forgiven. God has forgiven us. The Lord, good and merciful and gracious, moving in an act of cleansing love, forgives you. You, if you are in Christ Jesus, are forgiven. Just think about that for a second. Think about how you... Thought of that person that cut you off in traffic this evening. You're forgiven if you're in Christ. Or think about how you spoke to your wife or your husband harshly on the way here. You're forgiven if you're in Christ. You see, in that court case I talked about a minute ago, you didn't present enough evidence to the court to absolve yourself of, of, to, to the right and just penalty that you deserved. You are standing there awaiting the verdict, and somehow, instead of life without parole, condemnation to hell, the possibility of freedom for the rest of eternity, you were told, the Lord has forgiven you. We would be shocked, wouldn't we? Because in His divine wisdom and counsel and character, rooted in His character of benevolence, mercy, and grace, He released you from any and all just requirements of His legal demands on your life. In all reality, if you are hidden in Christ, a stunning miracle has happened because the Lord has forgiven you. That is a miracle, friends. You've done nothing to deserve it. You have not a shred of evidence to your credit. You should be condemned guilty before a just and holy God. But in Christ, you have been forgiven. And and so the natural next question should be in our minds is how? If, if every ounce of evidence that I could lobby before God for myself would be a condemning evidence to condemn me to hell, to, to live under his just punishment, how is it possible for this just, good, holy, benevolent God to not condemn us but forgive us? How is that even possible? And asking this question really does get to the foundation of our whole, our whole weekend. Forgiveness is possible not merely because God possesses the character of mercy and grace, but God acts upon that character and moves towards you and me who deserve nothing at all. And he loves us by gifting us his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, our great gift came to serve us in our desperate unforgivable state. In Colossians chapter 2, this is what Paul writes in 13 and 14 verses 13 and 14, and you who were not only unloved, unholy, unforgiven before Christ forgiving you, God forgiving you, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And God May, for uh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by cancelling the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands, and set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He took every shred of evidence against you, and He nailed it to the cross. But interestingly, it wasn't a case file that was pinned to the cross. It was his son, Jesus. And Paul writes earlier in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, that he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness. So we were also in darkness And He has transformed us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. We weren't even in the kingdom. But He's made us into the kingdom in whom we have redemption. And what? The forgiveness of our sins. It is only by Christ that we are forgiven. What what is stunning in this act of God is that He doesn't just move a little closer to us. It's not like He's sitting on one end of the pew... And you're sitting on the opposite side of the room and he sort of just shifts over a little bit. No. He actually becomes like us. He puts on flesh in an act of faithfulness to his own promises in the Old Testament to be a forgiving God to his chosen people. And Paul writes in another letter that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8. And back in Colossians, Paul says, For in him, that's, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile himself all, to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, God is. And the great God's great act of becoming like men was a marvelous act of service, whereby he died on the cross and restored us back to peace, being at peace with God. That's amazing, isn't it? That's phenomenal. That Paul calls this peace between God and man that Christ restores, he calls it reconciliation. He takes two estranged parties, God and humanity, through Jesus' work on the cross and unites them in a relationship of peace. And without Christ, without this great servant Jesus Christ coming, we would be left unreconciled, at enmity with God, alienated, lacking peace, and unforgiven. It would be really, really bad news if Jesus didn't show up and God did not come to serve us. And Jesus in his own earthly ministry tells the disciples how actually he has come to serve. He tells them, as they are arguing about who's going to be first in the kingdom of God, uh, Jesus tells them in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus Christ, aware of his own ministry, his own service to us, comes and gives himself as an act of service to you and to me as an act of love towards us. And, and just as I said, that the, these, these, uh, the disciples were arguing about uh, who's going to have these seats of power in the kingdom. And Jesus says, this is not the kingdom of God that you guys are talking about. I don't run a Gentile kingdom. I run my Father's kingdom. And, and in God's kingdom, it's not going to be filled with power-hungry, Self-serving, self-righteous lords, but selfless, sacrificial servants. Christ invites us to be like Him if we're going to be in His kingdom. And He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And so, I would even go as far to say that Christian homes should reflect the kingdom of God. So they shouldn't be filled. Christian homes should not be filled with mean-spirited, selfish, expectant husbands and wives who have everyone serving at their beck and call. That's not Christian marriage. That's not a Christian home. That is a marriage that resembles much of the power struggles within the world. Jesus and his followers are not like the Gentiles. Jesus is the Lamb of God who rules with love and grace and mercy, not unbridled power running a ruthless power structure. That is not our king. And that is not the way of the kingdom. And as... As such a good and heavenly king, he does not need the service of any man. Contrary to most of our beliefs, he doesn't need us. Rather, the plan from the beginning of the foundation of the world is that Christ would come to serve those whom he would forgive. And he would give himself as a ransom for many. Dying on a cross, and his great act of sacrificial service bought our forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Friends, that is the good news that should run your home. That is the good news that should run your life. That we have been served by Jesus, and if we believe in him and we repent of our sin, then we have been reconciled to God and we have been forgiven. And Jesus offers Himself to us to fulfill the will of God and justify us in that horrible court case where we have no evidence for our own forgiveness. We have no evidence for our acquittal. But Jesus justifies us and forgives unrighteous sinners by nailing their transgressions to the cross with Him. He takes on that burden Himself and is counted as sin on your behalf, friend. And if you're a Christian, you've believed in that good news. You've been served by Jesus. Not papers for showing up to court, not your just due penalty, but you have been served by Him by being cleansed by Him and made righteous and at peace with God. But if you've never believed this, if you've never trusted in Christ as your sole King and your the one in whom has come to serve you, tonight can be the night that you trust in him. Tonight can be the night that you repent and believe. And I want to say, I'm available to talk to you, Pastor Jared, Chad, Pastor Doug, any of us would love to talk to you. If you're a friend who have invited you here, we'd love to talk to you about what is it been to truly believe in this good news. And if we've believed in this good news, if we've trusted in Christ, if we're hidden in Jesus, if we've been forgiven and we've been reconciled to God, what does Paul tell us our only right response is to this? In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says the only right and logical response to our belief and trust in Jesus is to give our lives as a living sacrifice to God. That we would serve Him now. We would gladly and freely give away all of our resources in acts of service to Him because of how benevolent and kind and merciful He's been to us. Not to earn His grace or keep His grace, but because He has been so gracious and merciful to us. And so if we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, we can respond in a worshipful way because we're free to serve Christ just as He served us. We're freed from the ways of our flesh and the ways of the world. And we're free to be like Christ and be servants in our marriages. And what does that look like? And so if God has called us, if God has come to serve us, then it makes it possible for us to serve. So let's look at, let's think about some practical ways that it really looks like if we are Christ's followers, how then shall we serve specifically within our marriages? If this is true of you, that you've been forgiven by God, and your marriage is a Christian marriage, then at the heart of your marriage should be two people with hearts that have changed from being ones who expect to be served to being husbands and wives who long to serve one another. Who in here longs to serve? Just, I, I just love serving. And then you go as far as a step to say, I love serving my wife. Or I love serving my husband. Now I'll tell you who I love serving. This guy. Okay? This guy. That's who I like to serve. But at the very center of a Christian marriage, there should be the acts of servanthood or the heart of servanthood. And when we take a realistic view of our marriages, we know that there are countless opportunities and circumstances for service within our marriage. Who had an opportunity to serve their wife or their husband today? Show of hands. All of us. And that's just today. And many of you have been married for more than a week. And so, by God's grace, you've had plenty of opportunities. You've had plenty of opportunities to serve before Christ, let's be honest, servant, servanthood, serving another person was very unnatural. And now that we have believed and trusted in Christ being forgiven, we're free to serve like Him. God sanctifies us or makes us holy as we selflessly and sacrificially serve one another. Therefore, our marriages are not so much about our happiness, but our holiness. Because I'll be honest with you, if you serve someone other than yourself and you fight against it, you see just how sinful you really are and what God is really up to in leading you to serve like his son Jesus. He's really up to rooting out sin and making you more like his son, making you holy. So listen to what Jesus says about serving one another in John chapter 13 as he washed the disciples' feet or just after the washing of the disciples' feet. He says, If then your Lord and your teacher, or if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus says that if we are obedient to following in his footsteps of service to one another, then we would be blessed in a sacrificial service to one another. Jesus says that if we're willing to obey him in his footsteps of service, that we will be blessed in sacrificially serving others. Is anybody in here not want to be blessed by Jesus? Is anybody in here not want their marriage blessed by God? Friends, you are free to give yourself and your resources as an act of service so that your spouse will receive the benefits of your service. You are free to give of yourself in order to benefit your spouse as an act of service. And when we serve In a manner of Christ, we give our resources of time and talents for the benefit of the other. Humble acts of Christ-like service are not about pleasing ourselves, but about giving away what we have so that our spouse might benefit from what we have. And friends, let me tell you, it wasn't just countercultural or counterintuitive or against your flesh before you became a Christian. It is still against every ounce of your flesh. We must realize in in seeking to be like Christ and serving one another, the insurmountable challenge of this type of service. You will not want to serve this way. Can I get an amen? I still, after 16 years of marriage, am more about serving me than serving my bride. We will, be tempted to do the, we will even be tempted to do the right thing, meaning the right action, with, with wrong motives. Uh, Jesus warns us in the Gospels that the right actions must be accompanied by the right spirit and attitude. Imagine the love and friendship and intimacy that would be possible if the mission of your marriage was, as for me and my marriage, we will imitate Christ's actions, attitudes, and spirit. As for me and my marriage, we will reflect and imitate Christ's actions and attitudes and spirit. And I would go as far to say even in servanthood. I mean, do you think that when Jesus was washing Judas's feet that he scrubbed them a little harder? A huffed a little bit as he dipped the rag in the water to, to wipe them off one more time? Or, or maybe, maybe he twisted his ankle a little bit just before he knew, because he knew what Judas was about to do as he served him in one of the most self-sacrificial ways he could before Judas did do what he did in betraying Jesus. No, that wasn't the heart of Christ he was probably just as tender with his foot as he was with Peter's. But just imagine how your spouse would evaluate your acts of service if they knew that you weren't washing the dishes in order to build up a reserve or a bank in which you could draw from when you wanted to be served. Oh, well, honey, remember, I washed the dishes the other day, so I should be able to go to the... Go to Buffalo Wild Wings, B-dubs tonight. You laugh. You laugh. You will be tempted to do that. You may already be doing it. We laugh for two things, for two reasons. One, because it's funny. Two, because it's true. we are serving one another as if we are building up a bank to draw from to serve ourselves. That is not Christ-like service. But what if your acts of service for washing the dishes or the clothes or changing the diaper or sitting down for a 45-minute conversation even though you are exhausted, even when you're tired, that you would do it all for the benefit of the one that you have been committed to for the rest of your life. And it had nothing to do with you. Husbands, Yes, you've had a taxing week. You've worked really, really hard. The day has been demanding. Your schedule has been consumed. You're driving in on two wheels into the driveway. But you've not planned for a 45-minute conversation with your bride as you walk through the door. <clears throat> if you like me, you're planned for the corner of the couch and a, and a glass of cold iced tea. However, husbands, if we are following Christ as servants, then such a conversation will be beneficial to us and to our spouses. The spiritual benefit for us will be that it will train us to sacrifice our time and our comfort. And since you are free in Christ Jesus, you have been empowered by Him so that your wife In the example of a sit down conversation, even when you're tired, she will know that what she has experienced today is heard and understood, even rather than taken for granted or even worse, overlooked. I'm not saying every one of you should go build in a 45 minute conversation into your day before you or just after you walk in the door. But husbands. I'm sure there are countless ways in which you can serve your wives in ways you haven't been in a self-sacrificial way just as Christ sacrificed himself for the church. Wives, I know this might sound really cliche, but I was going to use it, I'm going to use it anyways. It really may look like a Saturday where you make it possible for his favorite sport to be watched without any interruptions. Could you imagine that? But you set up the day so that the hot wings and the snacks flow. You may even say to him, I don't, I don't expect for you to have to move an inch unless for, from your favorite sport unless you have to do something for yourself. Other than that, let me know what you need. I'll refill your basket of hot wings and your cold drink. I, I mean, uh, you know... <laughs> Hot wings are good, brother. I don't know if you've heard, um, but <laughs> uh, but I will say this: that one thing that I have found out to be true in my own life, as I seek to serve my wife in this way, is that true service beget, begets or produces more service. True service produces more service. Have any of you read the little children's books? It, or that are like this, that have titles like this. If you give a moose a muffin, yeah, okay. Uh, well, so you know the idea: the kid gives the muffin to the moose, and then the then that muffin leads to arts and crafts, and then the dress up, and then until the moose wants another muffin, and they got to go to the store. One thing leads to another, and another, and another, and another. I really think it's the way the kid is explaining the mess in the house, but that's another story. We'll talk about the philosophy find that book later, but. Let me give you a little example from my own life. Earlier this week, Amanda and I were both truly exhausted and tired. We've been working very hard this month. We've had we've barely had time to talk and even in those times of talking, it's been atrocious. She needed to leave for practice to practice music the other day. She's way more gifted and talented than I am. She can actually play guitar and sing. Do not put a guitar in my hands. Do not expect me to sing. Okay? And she's she looks back over her shoulder as she's walking over the door, and she sincerely asked me, babe, the, the kitchen's in a mess. Can, can that not be there when I get back? <clears throat> well, uh, I agreed verbally, but in my mind and in my heart, I set out to prolong the start of the cleanup process as long as possible. But I've done that enough in 16 years to know that you shouldn't be washing and cleaning up that mess when she walks through the door at 10:30. <clears throat> so eventually I got started at washing the dishes. But then I put up the leftovers and then I straightened up the table. I folded the 19,000 blankets we have in our living room. If you've been to my house, you know this problem that I have. Um, And then I straightened up the couch cushions. And I even pressed the start button on the dishwasher. Praise and glory be to God. In all honesty, I set out to wash the dishes, but I started doing other things. Truly, I was not being begrudging when I did it. I was simply procrastinating. And, and when the Spirit convicted me, I got off my butt to do it. And then the true desire to serve my wife bred, bred more desire in me to serve her more. I truly wanted her to walk in the house and take a deep breath and rest rather than work. Because she'd been working so hard before she left. I am not the model here I get this wrong more often than I get it right but true service begets more service such that we really desire that our service not be for some benefit that we receive but for, for the sole benefit of our spouse when is the last time you serve that way friends When is the last time that your sole reason for doing the thing you did for your spouse was for them and them alone? The only way that we can live servant-hearted like this is if Christ has truly changed us. Each day we can get up and we can die to our desires and rise as a servant. We can embrace the discipline of sacrifice and service as daily practices because of Christ. What if we have entered into our marriages not with their requests, but offers? What if your day or your time with your wife and asking of them started more like, will you accept what I'm giving rather than will you do this for me? This would radically transform how we serve as husbands and wives. So how will you listen and apply what you will hear from us this weekend? How will this weekend change your marriage? How will this weekend make you a better servant in your marriage? First and foremost, we must ask, have we been forgiven? Have we been forgiven? Have we trusted in Christ Jesus as our servant and our king? If you are following his life, or if you're following and allowing his life-altering servant heart towards you to develop a servant heart for your spouse, then live that way and commit to be that way from this day forward. Or do you need to take some time to reflect on how how you've served or evaluate the attitude and the spirit in which you've served? over the past weeks and months in your home. Tonight, you can be forgiven and your sins be cleansed. Seek God in the words of David. And if, I would say that if, you've, if you have been forgiven, but you're living in sin in this way of not serving your bride or your husband well, then I would encourage you to pray this prayer from David from Psalm chapter, one, Psalm chapter 32. He said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then David goes on to write, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Maybe, just maybe, you need to take some time tonight to seek forgiveness from your own failures in servanthood. But I would also say that you may need to look at your husband or your wife and you may need to seek their forgiveness for the poor attitude and poor actions that you've expressed towards them. You've maybe twisted their ankle a little bit You may be scrubbed a little hard or you may have huffed and puffed this week as you served. Know that forgiveness is possible for all your sins and you can be cleansed and made righteous in Christ Jesus. And you can be a true servant. You can be a husband who serves. You can be a wife who serves all because of what Christ Jesus does for you and does specifically for your marriage. So I want to pray for us before we wrap up our evening together. Oh, Father God, we thank you for this time. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came to serve us. Father, I pray that we would go from this place doing the hard work of seeking forgiveness. Forgiveness from you and forgiveness from our spouse. God, may we truly be empowered to be servants in our homes. May servanthood be at the very heart of our marriage, God. God, I pray that you would help us as we go home, keep us safe, bring us safely back tomorrow. I thank you so much for this time as we've studied your word. And we thank you, Christ, for serving us so wonderfully and mercifully. It's in your holy and precious name I pray. Amen.